Have you heard the phrase, hope is not a strategy? What if it is? This conversation between Jeff and Casey Gwynn, a co-author of Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life, will likely impact your perspective about what hope actually is and the power it can play in lives if understood and embraced. As you are about to hear, this is great stuff. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, hi, uh, welcome. The, I'm Jeff Rose and welcome to Leader Chat. And I, I'm excited for the guest today and there's a very specific reason as to why. So um, as you know, um, many of our, our members are watching this video, um, whether it's they're seeing it aired live or whether they're seeing the recording of it. Um, we post the podcast. The, the content of our leader chat, as our listeners or our watchers know, is we try to find content that's rel relative or needed in educational leadership. And what we have found is that at times we talk to, you know, kind of these rock star educators, and at times we um, engage these incredible leaders that may or may not traditionally align just to education. And so I've... I've just been very fortunate to be, come across these incredible thinkers, and today is a great example of that. So we had one of our members on the West Coast reach out to me and say, my, my staff, as this is a superintendent, and all of her principals and staff had read a particular book. And she said, Jeff, there's a, there's a book you just have to, you have to read. It's called um, Hope Rising with Casey Gwynn um, and Chan Hellman. And uh, I read it. And I was very intrigued. So I reached out and engaged um, Casey and I think, I don't know, begged or uh, harassed him to come. Casey, as you'll see, is an extremely uh, busy man and a re renaissance man who does a lot of incredible work. And so he's here with us today to talk about not just what he does, but this concept of hope and how that impacts us as people. And then, of course, specifically as leaders in the educational realm, um, I'm, I'm really excited. So let me start off with a very brief, he asked me to be very brief about his bio. So I'll probably just stop in the middle of it and get him on the screen and we'll start talking. So Casey Gwynn serves as the president of Alliance for Hope International. Casey has authored or co-authored 11 books since 2006. I did, I did say that. 11 books since 2006. Casey's current bestseller award-winning book written with Dr. Chan Hillman um, from the Hope Rising Research Center at the University of Oklahoma is entitled Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life. And it's a roadmap to this life well-lived and the points um, the way towards the power of hope and the law in the lives of those who have experienced domestic violence, trauma, hardship, and adversity. Now, this is relevant specific to the work we do as educators, but you will also see the concepts in it relative to hope um, really transcend other things. And so as I read it, um, of course, I was touched, but I also found it being very meaningful to my life as a leader. And I think you will understand why. So let me let me invite our guest to the screen. Oh, so Casey, I thank you for being here with us today. And I know I I missed stuff in your bio. I went really really fast. How about this? Can can you tell me what important parts I I left out, and maybe just include that some of the 
maybe the early motivation to do what you do now? Well, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Uh, my education on trauma and adversity uh, began when I was five years old growing up in a home impacted by generations of child abuse and domestic violence. My father had been severely abused by his father. Uh, my grandfather abused both of his wives. And I grew up in a home with a dad who was bipolar, unmedicated for most of his adult life. I don't believe my father ever physically abused my mother, but he abused all four of his kids. And we have a suicide in my immediate family related to that journey. And I grew up uh, understanding the rage and anger that comes out of a child when they're growing up in a home with violence and abuse. I grew up understanding what that looks like when it plays itself out in the classroom uh, in elementary school or middle school or high school. And kind of by the grace of God, I believe, I ended up being able to navigate that, go to Stanford University, get a law degree from UCLA, and became a prosecutor in San Diego a long, long time ago, 1985, handling child abuse and domestic violence cases. And everything since then for me is just divine appointment stuff. I've had the opportunity to prosecute thousands of cases as a prosecutor. I was honored to then, after I left office as the elected city attorney of San Diego in 2004, start Alliance for Hope International. And now our work is all over the United States and around the world. And 10 years ago, I learned about uh, hope theory and the science of hope out of the positive psychology movement. Changed my life, changed our organization, changed the work we do. Uh, and now I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a disciple of Dr. Rick Snyder, the original founder of Hope Theory at the University of Kansas. And the work we now do is all focused on what does it mean to be trauma-informed, what does it mean to be hope-centered, and how can we use this incredible science uh, to change the lives of both adults and kids impacted by trauma, violence, and adversity? There's well, there's one part I want to I want to create a bridge to because I'm 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 missing a little bit. So you know you talked about obviously how you were exposed uh, to you know tr uh, significant trauma. Um, and then you talked about your even some of your educational background, which is extremely impressive. And then how you've worked in as as an attorney in the specific field. I, I want to know more about the transition from that work to what you do now. I mean, I, I, some ways it's it's obvious, but um, I was joking with you when we talked earlier about being a Renaissance man. I it, that that could be a really accurate description, but. What was it that you know created this transition for specifically what you're doing now to serve? Because we'll get into that, but um, I, I just want to know more. Well, I think when I became a prosecutor, I had my own ideas about what my career was going to look like. To be a prosecutor in America, you know, the goal is kind of you rise up in a prosecutor's office and you eventually do homicide cases. If you really become a big deal, you do uh, capital murder cases as a prosecutor. Uh, I was sick the day that everybody picked their area of interest when I began as a prosecutor. I came back the following Monday and only child abuse and domestic violence had not been picked. Nobody wanted to do those cases. And we didn't have a specialized unit at the time. So I thought, not identifying as a kid who grew up in a home impacted by generations of abuse, I thought, I'll, I'll handle those cases. Seems wrong that somebody would abuse a kid. Seems wrong that somebody would abuse their, their partner in an intimate relationship. And quite frankly, that uh, moment 
shaped my whole life. I was a prosecutor uh, for 11 years before I became elected. When I became the elected city attorney, ran for office in San Diego. I had to do a lot of things with a staff of 350. But deep in my heart, my passion because of my own experience and because of the difficulty I've seen uh, of those that grow up with unmitigated trauma in their life, it always captured me. So when I left office in 2004, I was getting ready to run for another office in San Diego. And I got invited to the White House to meet with George W. Bush uh, in 2003 uh, in the West Wing of the White House. And George W. Bush said, I've seen what you did with this Family Justice Center in San Diego. Uh, I had just been on Oprah Winfrey and Oprah had endorsed the Family Justice Center framework we created in San Diego. 25 agencies all under one roof, all working with victims of child abuse and domestic violence in one place. And after I was on Oprah, I got invited uh, to the White House. George W. Bush said, I want you to run an initiative for me. And I thought, I'm going to take this as a calling if the President of the United States has me in the West Wing asking me to run something. And it was pretty funny the day we talked because I didn't know what he was announcing that day. I'd been invited to the White House. I had no idea what was going to happen. I knew he was giving a speech during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but I knew nothing else. I already had a committee going to run for office again in San Diego for another office. And in the West Wing of the White House, George Bush said, we're following your leadership today, Casey. And I said, well, Mr. President, I'm following your leadership. And he kind of looked at me and said, no, you're in charge. This is your this is your thing. And I didn't know what the thing was. It wasn't until an hour later where I walked into the East Room with 250 people uh, right next to the President of the United States. And he said, we're going to create these family justice centers to provide services to victims of trauma all over America. And we're going to follow Casey Gwynn. So that was the beginning <laughs> of my journey. Uh, so if you wonder what in the world, how in the world did I end up in this? Uh, there it was. It was a little bit of Oprah and it was a lot of President George W. Bush. And that's when we began creating these centers all over America. So we'd opened one in San Diego. It didn't exist anywhere on the planet. 25 agencies under one roof, all in one place where adults and kids can come for help. And today we have family justice centers in 43 states and 25 countries, all built on that simple concept that survivors should be able to go one place. Because in most communities, they don't. They got to go over here for law enforcement, here for the courts, here for prosecutors, here for medical services. If their kids have also experienced trauma, the children have to go over here and they go from place to place to place to place to place in order to get help. And we've changed that with the Family Justice Center movement and concept. And we're now starting these centers all over the country. Uh, we have three centers in development in Georgia uh, right now that we're very excited about, brand new centers. I've spent the last six months in Georgia, maybe 10 trips. And we are now all over America and around the world, and it works. So the biggest finding in our work is, even though domestic violence and child abuse homicides have dramatically increased over the COVID years, in family justice centers, if somebody comes to one of our centers for wraparound services, uh, the homicide rate is 95% lower compared to when they go for other services or when they don't go anywhere for services. We are proving that we can stop domestic and child homicides in America if we just plain wrap people in support and services and give them a pathway to hope in their life so they can see a way to go forward and get out uh, of the vicious cycle of generational violence and abuse. Incredible. And I I guess I'll just bring a, a bit of levity to the conversation by saying I, I think there was a conversation between um, you know, between these two, I think that, um, so, well, how about this? When the president calls you 
and has a conversation, um, you either, right, you just are motivated to say yes, or it's probably really difficult to say, no, I'm not interested. And I, I think maybe Oprah and, and President Bush talked and Oprah decided, you know, I'll grease the wheel and then you're going to seal the deal. And maybe, Casey, you just got manipulated into starting this movement, right? Potent Perhaps you had no idea of the grand plan that was laid out prior and it's just taken from that. So um, truly amazing. There's a, I, I want to talk about the, this, this concept of hope a little bit because one thing that stood out to me um, in the book is sometimes the misunderstanding or the misuse or the way hope is used, the, just the word and the concept, it might mean kind of who you're talking to. And there's this one part that I, I highlight the heck out of books, as most of our listeners know. But um, early in the book, this is what I highlighted. Hope is not just an idea. Hope is not simply an emotion. It is far more than a feeling. It is not a wish or even an expectation. Hope is about goals, willpower, and pathways. A person with high hope has high goals, the motiv motivation to pursue them, and the determination to overcome obstacles and find pathways to achieve them. I um, I think that's really beautiful, and I think it's really important to define it so you know what you're talking about. And the book continues to do that, which, once again, was motivating for me. Can you talk to us about what you have learned relation related to hope as described here in the book and the impact that has on people or the... Um, you know, how that translates to kind of some life successes. Yeah. I, I first learned about hope theory within the positive psychology movement in 2012. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma and working with one of our family justice centers there. And the director said, you should meet Dr. Chan Hellman. He runs the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, it, you'd like him. You, you should connect with him. And I, and I said, what's his title? And, he, and she said, he's a quantitative psychologist. And you said, no, and thanks. I, I, just, I just talked to presidents. Let me check my bucket list <laughs> and see if spending time with a quantitative psychologist is on my bucket list. It was not. She, by the way, had, at the same time had told him, you should meet Casey Gwynn. He's a lawyer from California and Chan hates lawyers. <laughs> and so Chan, so we were literally in Tulsa. He lives in Tulsa. I was there in Tulsa. I didn't want to go see him and he didn't want to go see me. So we ended up on a FaceTime call where he's in his backyard um, and I'm at the Tulsa Family Safety Center chit-chatting. And I said, so tell me a little bit more about your work. And he said, well, tell me about your work. You, uh, you're very involved in working with abused children and children experiencing harm. I said, we are. We have a camp called Camp Hope America. And he said, do you measure hope in everything you do? And I said, you can't measure hope. Uh, hope is not something measurable. And he said, I'm a quantitative psychologist. I can measure anything. <laughs> and I thought, oh, and you're arrogant, too. Uh, and then he said, well, do you increase hope in the lives of the kids you work with? And I said, well, I think so. I mean, we see the change in even a week of camp. And then we see what happens when kids end up in supportive relationships after that. And he said, well, let's measure it. And that was the beginning of my education. In the summer of 2013, we used the validated children's hope scale from Rick Snyder many years earlier from the University of Kansas. We measured hope 30 days before camp, the last day of camp. And then 30 days after camp, their hope scores went back down again, not to baseline, but close to baseline. And I, I called Chan when I got the results and I said, your, your scales are flawed. 
And he said, my scales aren't flawed. He said, you're not teaching the science of hope at your camp. All you're doing is giving kids fun experiences, but you're not equipping them to set goals, figure out the steps to their goals, figure out how to do what's called barriers thinking or pathways thinking, and you're not helping them figure out how to re-goal when they have a goal that they can't get to, that there literally is no pathway for. And we redid our whole curriculum based on that, and two years later, 30 days before camp, last day of camp, 30 days after camp, and it changed our world. Suddenly, we not only were doing a camp program that was incredibly powerful for kids who had never been in those environments before, but number two, we were giving them the skills to figure out goal setting, the incredible importance of affirmative relationships around them when they set goals, the pathways thinking, because goals, like New Year's resolutions, will always fail if you don't know the pathway. If you can't figure out how to get there, if you don't pre-plan what you're going to do when barriers come in your way, and that's, for me, I was captivated by the simplicity of the science. It was, for many years, just called hope theory. There are very few people uh, in the social services world or the human services world or the educational world that are now calling it hope theory anymore. It's a science. I mean, our lit review for Hope Rising was 2,000 published studies on, on hope and its power. And the, here's the conclusion. And this isn't just us, by the way. Gallup has come out with very similar results. A two-point increase in a child's hope score is a letter grade in school, irrespective of race or IQ. A four-point increase in a child's hope score is two-letter grades in school, irrespective of race or IQ. So if you can increase a child's hope score and sustain that increase, you're changing the world for that child. And the amazing thing for me about hope is hope predicts well-being and trauma recovery. And if you can understand how to apply the science of hope, it transforms education. It can transform private education, public education. Uh, Gallup uh, has been saying this for about 10 years uh, since they first started measuring hope in the American public. They have now have the Gallup student poll that measures hope and resiliency in uh, public school students, over 5 million of them every year. Uh, and for us, all we did was just start applying what we had learned uh, from the original research of Rick Snyder at the University of Kansas from Martin Seligman's work, uh, and then from what Chan has been finding at the Hope Research Center. Uh, that's the journey, and it's that simple. So for me, uh, I quickly figured out that if we were going to have an organization that was going to teach about hope, we needed ourselves to be a hope-centered organization, and we were not. We were not focusing on goals, pathways, agency, which is the motivation to pursue goals. We were doing things like putting people on performance plans as employees if they were not doing good work. A performance plan is externalizing goals to another person. That's not hope. Hope has to be about your goals for yourself, or it has to be about a person's goals. I can't externalize hope on another person. A teacher in the classroom that's dealing with a rage-filled child wants to discipline them there for their profanity, or if you say F you to a teacher, you're straight to the principal's office, and that F you has nothing to do with their cognitive abilities. It has nothing to do with their ability to find hope in their life. They've just got a ton of anger and rage in their, in their bodies, in their minds, and they don't know where it comes from. And when we focus on discipline uh, instead of 
affirmation, encouragement, and support, and helping kids find pathways, we're not giving them hope. We're actually robbing them of their ability to set their own goals and find their own pathways. So for us, it's been a transformational journey. So, uh, and this this is for the listener, not not, not for you. I want them to hear this. Um, so uh, uh, this is very quick. Hope is the belief that your future can be brighter and better than your past, and that you can actually have a role to play in making it better. So that's something that comes to the book. So for the listener, um, what's interesting, and this is the question, Casey, it sounds like you had been on a path aligned to supporting you know, students and youth and so forth, and then learning about the science of hope created a pivot in your organization that allowed you to, number one, look at data to determine whether you're successful and make some dramatic changes in the overall model that to this point changes the trajectory of lives of those that you're serving. Did I accurately say that? Yes. And we hadn't applied it to education until about eight or nine years ago. Uh, I trained 1,600 teachers in Oklahoma uh, at an all-day event uh, in a major school district in Oklahoma because of the request of then Joy Hoffmeister, who was a superintendent of schools for the state of Oklahoma. And she had started measuring adverse childhood experiences, which is called the ACE scale, Mm -hmm. that measures childhood trauma. She'd found that the average ACE score in children in the public schools in Oklahoma was almost a four, very significant uh, score of everybody coming into the public schools. And then she said, but so what? If we know they've got a lot of trauma, what's the answer? And we said the answer is hope because hope predicts well-being. And well-being is the goal that produces better outcomes in people's lives. So I went in and talked to 1,600 teachers for eight hours one day on the science of hope. We measured their ACE score, by the way, the teachers' adverse childhood experience scores. We measured their hope scores, and no great surprise, uh, we found out that uh, the lower hope teachers don't do as well in the classroom. Higher hope teachers do way better in the classroom and hope begets hope in people's lives. If you have no hope in your own life, you don't have the ability to offer or lend hope to others. I had a teacher come up, by the way, at a break during that day. She had taken the hope scale. It's just our validated eight eight statements that people rate themselves on uh, between a score of one to eight. She came up and she held her piece of paper in front of me. She said, so you're saying I have a low hope score. And I said, you don't have to share your hope score with me. You know, I, I just wanted you to understand the science behind it. Well, I'll tell you, I took your little scale and it says I have a low hope score, but you don't understand what these kids are like. I've been teaching 32 years. These kids are like animals in the classroom. They don't respect me. They don't listen to me. You should see the way they behave. It's like, oh my gosh. And I said, you might want to take a break. Uh, because I feel like you're in a pretty dark place. She said, well, of course I'm in a dark place. You should see what they pay me and what they make me do. I didn't need to know her hope score. I didn't need to know her hope score that she'd lost her way, that she didn't have goals that she was focusing on in her life that would feed her soul, that she wasn't doing pathways thinking. And five minutes later, another teacher came up to me and said, this is the calling of my life. She said, my husband just died and I've been in a pretty dark place, but I've realized I got to set goals. I've got to look for a pathway forward and I've got to figure out the steps on that pathway because my heart is broken, uh, but I still have a lot to offer these kids in my classroom. It was the exact opposite 
these two teachers that within five minutes were talking to me. And that that has just been an eye opener. We're now asking how does the science apply to probation and parole officers across America? We're, I'm training 400 officers in a probation department in California right now. Talk about a loho bunch. Uh, we're just we just did this in a police department. Talk about a loho bunch in America right now. People robbed of hope. So what we love about this language around hope, it is a great way to talk to a child or an adult about difficulties they're facing. We're born with hope. It's the nature of being human. We get to look forward in life, imagine who we are, who we want to be, who we want to love, what we want to do, and then people get robbed of hope in life. Adversity, trauma, illness, disease, they can all rob us of hope. And once we understand how the robbery of hope happens in somebody's life, the good news is hope is malleable, and we can apply the science on how to rebuild hope in somebody's life. And I am certain that if we applied this in every school in America, if we applied it in every prison in America, if we applied it with trauma-impacted kids across America, it changes the world. I mean, we just got a call from a, a Camp Hope program in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, they started teaching our hope principles inside their camp, and they said it's the most amazing thing. We're not having fights anymore at camp. We're not having kids get really triggered at camp because suddenly as hope is rising, kids get excited about their future and their life. Uh, trauma looks backward, hope looks forward. And if we can help people contextualize their past and then move forward in life, it produces well-being. And well-being is our goal for all of us, a life well lived. Can you, can you tell um, the listener uh, about this, you know, the hope continuum. I mean, can we just focus on that a little bit more? Sure. So we uh, we found this in our lit review for the book out of the 2000 studies we looked at. Here's hope. Our adult definition of hope is hope is the belief, uh, as Jeff just said, hope is the belief, not yeah. a feeling, a cognitive belief that your future can be brighter than your past or better than your past and that you play a role in making it happen by the goals you set and the pathways you pursue. The closest thing to hope is anger, rage, and frustration. You have goals, but you don't know how to get there. You have goals, but the pathways are blocked. And everybody naturally gets angry or frustrated when you have goals and you can't achieve them. I grew up in an abusive home. I wanted my dad to look like this, to do this, to act like this. I couldn't control my father's behavior. The result was anger, rage, and frustration that I internalized into my body like so many trauma-impacted kids do. I didn't know why I was angry. I just knew I was angry all the time hope, rage, anger, and frustration, and then the continuum as you start to decline and lose even motivation to pursue goals that are blocked, you start to experience what's called despair. And despair is when desperate people start doing desperate things because they don't know how to get back to where they would like to be in life or they want the world to look like this and it's not and they don't know how to change it. Despair is the next piece. And then the opposite of hope is not necessarily hopelessness. The opposite of hope is apathy. When people say, mm -hmm. I don't care anymore. I don't give a shit about anything. Yeah. Nothing yeah. matters anymore in my life. That apathetic 15 year old in a high school classroom, you can spot them like they have a neon sign on their forehead. And when you get to that apathetic place, it's challenging and difficult for every teacher, for every social worker, uh, for people in all professions when you're dealing with somebody who is apathetic. In the domestic violence world, that looks like a victim who says, I can't get away from him. 
He's going to kill me. If I leave, he'll never let me go. Um, that's apathy. Hope, anger, rage, frustration, despair, and apathy. And it applies to any profession. We just trained the Minneapolis Police Department where George Floyd died. We just trained the Minneapolis Police Department on the science of hope. And when I showed the continuum, hope, anger, despair, apathy, uh, we actually had a police officer stand up when I put up the continuum on a slide. And he said, apathy is my effing superpower. You're making it sound like a bad thing. And the whole room was like, yikes. <laughs> and I said, how long you been with Minneapolis PD, officer? 27 years, and I'm a sergeant. Call me sergeant. Okay, sergeant. Um, tell me a little bit more. And he said, well, they've attacked us. They've accused us of things. Uh, I was so frustrated at first, but now I don't care anymore. They can say whatever they want. Apathy is my effing superpower. As long as oh. they pay me every two weeks, it doesn't matter what they say about me. And at the break, I went up to him and I said, you should turn in your badge and gun and take a leave of absence. I said, I can't imagine you being out there with a badge and a gun in the place you are from a mental health standpoint right now, because you have no hope in your life at all. He said, oh, it was just an effing joke. It was not a joke. He stood up in, a hundred, in front of 170 people and said that. It was not a joke and nobody laughed. So it can happen to a police officer. It can happen to somebody in any profession. I just found out 40% of the nurses in San Diego quit during COVID at Sharp Hospital System. 40% robbed of hope. Yeah. Robbed of the ability to control their own goals in life. Robbed of the ability to find pathways to their goals. Uh, it can happen to anybody. The robbery and loss of hope. The good news is it can be recultivated and we can raise hope again in our lives too through a conscious process. You must hate the quote about hope not being a strategy, right? I'm sure you've heard this before, but um, here's, here's my question then. So as, as, as we aim to support, as you do as well, um, educators, leaders, we know that right now the um, – this topic of hope, actually the, the science and the strategy of hope can be potentially more relevant now than it's ever been, right? So from the adult perspective, just the educators, right? We're seeing a mass exodus from education. Teachers, huge turnover in leadership, a much more significant turnover in educational leadership than even teachers. And um, for some obvious reasons, we're seeing social emotional needs of teachers, students, and families at an all-time high, and you know all the data on that. So right now, not only is it relevant, not only is it important, let's talk strategy. So what would you, th how would you summarize how an organization, because these aren't just schools, they're organizations, right? Sometimes they're multi-million dollar. My last budget was 1.5 billion in my, in my superintendent role. It's an organization. How do you look at an organizational strategy relative to the science of hope being as important as it is now? I know that's a huge question, but maybe you can kind of you know, boil it down into some really important factors. 
Well, I'll say this. If hope, if, if folks read Hope Rising, it'll become pretty clear yes. how you've got to go through this journey. One, you have to you have to do the work with the leadership of an organization first. Actually, they have to be willing to buy in to the fact that there is a science behind this. They have to understand the principles behind that science, the research behind that science. So we have a whole program on how any type of organization, institutional organization, educational organization, anybody uh, actually learns the science and studies it together. And Brene Brown said it in a different context, but you cannot give what you do not have. So you don't start with the kids in an educational setting. You start with the teachers, you start with the administrators, you start with the leadership of a school district, the leadership of a school. Uh, you understand the science, do a book club of Hope Rising, read together, talk about it together. Uh, some districts bring us in to actually then do a deeper dive with them and start applying it. So once you understand the science and people start taking responsibility for their own uh, issues in their own life and responsibility for their own hope scores and their own well-being, then you can begin to say, okay, we have something now from our teaching team to offer to children in the classroom. So I'll give you one example in a school district in Oklahoma where after all the teachers went through a book club uh, with their principal in a particular school, then they said, uh, we've got to do what the book says, which is when you have kids robbed of hope in their life, dealing with struggle and adversity, they've got a negative tape playing in their head all the time. They've got internalized anger and frustration that they don't even understand. You've got to, one, replace the negative tape with positive, affirming statements. So they adopted these truth statements. We have learned that if kids memorize truth statements about themselves, my future can be brighter than my past. I choose to grow where I am. My light can inspire others. I am resilient. Whatever the truth statements, and we have a different curriculum for our Camp Hope program every year that this school district adopted to actually teach kids these true statements then this is middle school by the way they then decided every day they would have a 20-minute segment on the science of hope so they'd have kids share goals in their life and then they'd have to answer the question is it hope or is it a wish mm. because if I say I hope it's 75 degrees tomorrow and sunny where I am and there's a storm coming that's not hope because I have no control over the weather. I can say I hope it's a beautiful day tomorrow, but that's not hope. That's a wish thrown into the universe. So literally, these kids in sixth grade, uh, as soon as the teacher says, is that a hope or a wish? Let's see, do I have control over it? Can I set goals around it, find a pathway? Nope, it's a wish. That's okay, it's great to have wishes. I mean, we all love to have wishes in life. I wish I'd win the lottery. Uh, I can't hope to win the lottery because I have no control over it. So the kids will go up in the front of the classroom and they'll put the wishes on this side, and hope on this side. And then they'll have practical conversations on how uh, to achieve what they've put on the hope list. I love that, that's sixth grade, imagine that. I mean, and you can do it in the educational setting. I just did it in a military setting where the general that introduced me, by the way, said, hope is not a strategy. Uh, <laughs> but I'm really interested in what Casey Gwynn has to say. So I got up and I said, general, I have a hunch that you're probably the most hope-centered person in this room because every general in the Marine Corps has goals. 
and you figure out a pathway and a plan and no generals ever led a successful war without goals and a pathway and a plan and people to support that plan uh, because if hope is a wish thrown into the universe you're right it's not a strategy it's just worthless but if hope is goals and pathways then you're the highest hope person in this room because you're a three-star general and you would have thought I'd just given him some kind of award the rest of the day he said I'm happy to say that I am a hope-centered person and I want you all to follow my leadership. It's like, that works for me. <laughs> well, the, the, what's interesting uh, about this science of hope is that, I mean, I, I can say when I, when, when I, even before I started reading, I, I just wasn't aware of exactly what I was getting into, right? I, I, was, I was unaware specific to um, the science and then specific to strategy, right? There's a lot of leaders, as you know, that talk about culture and climate being so important, right? And there's recognition that it's important. And there's also recognition that um, it, it's creating dramatic challenges. Now, the hope, if you think about it and how one may define it in loosely, as you describe it, like, you know, hoping the weather's better tomorrow, um, that doesn't align to how it is precisely defined and articulated in the science as the book describes. Therefore, after reading it, I thought, this is a leadership book. So it came to me across like, as a leader, this creates strategy. That's why I joked around the quote of hope is not a strategy. It actually is, if you understand the science of hope and then what Absolutely. you can do to make an impact, right? And so... I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you say start with leaders. I, I think it takes more than reading. I think it takes also some very intentional steps afterwards. So what is your, what is your advice for one who reads? Because obviously, um, part of what I would do, uh, what I want to do is promote people understand this content. But beyond that, what would you tell the leader who's reading it maybe alone? What are some of the really initial basic steps to create some kind of traction in this discussion within their organization? Well, I will say that just reading it alone is not going to create traction in an organization. You know, hope, we say hope is a team sport. Uh, nobody has high hope in their life all alone. Nobody, uh, quite frankly. Uh, hope is relational. Uh, Chan says hope is a social gift uh, that we give to each other. So for us, if hope is a team sport, it's always got to be gather a group of people. You read the book, gather a group of people around you, talk to them about it, have them read the book, uh, begin to build a nucleus. It's critical mass in social change theory. That's where you start. And by the way, when we go from the transition from getting leaders on board to becoming not only trauma-informed, which a lot of schools are thinking about becoming trauma-informed, understanding the difference between looking at a child and thinking, what's wrong with you, to looking at a child and think, what happened to you? What have you experienced? What you've gone through? Trauma-informed work in the schools is starting to move out across the country. But what happened in Oklahoma and is happening in other states is, so what if you're trauma-informed? So what if you measure ACE scores in your kids in the public schools? de-identified ACE scores about their childhood. So what? What's next? After you're kind and thoughtful and loving and you have ways to mitigate the impacts of trauma and kids that have uh, struggle with attention deficit disorder, struggle with uh, hostile reactions to others in the classroom, so what? 
being trauma-informed doesn't take you anywhere. Trauma-informed is just identifying what somebody's been through and what they've struggled with and what they are currently struggling with. Hope has to take you forward. I will say that when we make the transition in schools from trauma-informed to adding hope-centered, we use a different definition of hope uh, than the scientific definition from uh, Dr. Rick Snyder. Okay. Our children's okay. definition of hope uh, is hope is believing in yourself, believing in others, and believing in your dreams. And we actually build curriculum around those three concepts. Uh, I just spoke in a child welfare system and they said, well, our entire goal is independence for kids aging out of the foster care system. They need to be independent and self-sufficient. And I messed up their whole conference. Their theme was independence. And I came in and said, if your goal is independence, you're going to fail probably never get invited back there. But I said, you're going to fail because kids need to be interdependent. They don't need to be independent. In fact, independence is the exact opposite of hope. Hope is relational. Hope is a community. They need a community of support around them. They need people that help them set goals and affirm and support them. So believing in yourself is not enough. If you just teach people to believe in themselves, me, 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 my goals, my pathways, what I want, why, what I want to do, pretty much just makes you a narcissist. Uh, believing in yourself is not the end-all and be-all to well-being. You've got to learn to believe in others, too. So I can teach a seven-year-old at camp, you know, if you were going to believe in others this week, what would that look like? And a seven-year-old can say to me, well, I would probably uh, cheer for them and tell them they can do it and figure out what they want to do and kind of be their friend. A seven-year-old can figure that out, that it's believing in yourself and believing in others. And then, of course, you've got to have what we call dreams, and then we break those down to goals and pathways toward dreams. Because you can have a dream. I mean, I say to a 10-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, an NBA basketball player. Well, there's only a couple thousand of those <laughs> in the universe. Uh, and uh, the likelihood of him becoming an NBA basketball player is incredibly remote. I don't want to rob him of his dreams, but I'll say so. How do, you have, how do you get to become an NBA basketball player? And just go play basketball. Mm, let's think about that. And then we talk about school. You got to play basketball in school. And you, then you got to play basketball in college. And they always bring up LeBron James, the only person, by the way, that never right. played basketball in college. But aside from LeBron James, they figure out they got to go to college. And then I say, well, what if you went to college and you weren't able to play on the basketball team because lots of people try to play basketball. I tried to play basketball at Stanford and I was short and white and couldn't jump and there was just no way I was going to get to play basketball at Stanford. Uh, but the fact that I got to college gave me other options and I got to think about all the other things I wanted to do in life. And any child, even if they say I want to be an NBA basketball player, says, well, I'd like to do this or maybe I could do that. That's called regoling. So I can teach a seven-year-old how to regal, and it's great to pursue being an NBA basketball player, but if they don't get there, what's the plan B? And plan B becomes something they're thinking about at seven, eight, nine, ten years old. So the journey for us is get the buy-in from the top, then start figuring out what your best strategy is. We know the science, by the way. Here's our curriculum in, in a paragraph. Kids need to learn about biographical characters like them, that look like them, that have their life experience, whether they have struggles with uh, gender or sexual identity, whether they struggle with the impacts of racism or poverty. Uh, all kids have to know, uh, basically at the core, um, understand that there are other people like them that navigated difficult things and got through it.
I mean, we've got somebody in our curriculum uh, for Camp Hope this coming summer, our, our curriculum is called Rooted. We've got somebody in the curriculum that was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he became obsessed with setting goals and thinking about pathways in his life. And 17 years after he went to prison, he got out of prison and now he runs an organization for trauma impacted kids. Awesome. And person of color, and he's going to be in the curriculum and every child of color at camp this summer all over America is going to learn about him and they can identify with him. He, the difficulties he went through as a child, the poor decision he made that, that ended, ended up in prison for potentially for life. And then his ability to say, but I can make different choices now. I can pick different goals. So biographical characters, truth statements, positive self-talk we put into a child's head in an affirming environment. Uh, and out you see hope rise, and then well-being rises, and then school performance rises. And by the way, disciplinary problems almost go away. And it's not always just about hope. There are things that drive hope. Mindfulness and meditation drive hope. Kids that can learn to center themselves end up more hopeful in life. So classrooms that are doing meditation and mindfulness transformative in helping kids self-regulate and when kids self-regulate they're more able to hear and listen to what's happening in the classroom and more able to pay attention and understand their bodies and what's happening when they feel anger rising up or frustration rising up and lo and behold mindfulness increases hope in kids lives so we use lots of strategies like that but at the end of the day you have to then start measuring it is what you're doing in the classroom increasing hope or not? Because if it's not increasing hope, you will fail in the classrooms of America. If what you're doing is increasing hope, you will find greater success in the classroom. So you gotta measure it to know, because if it's not working, if kids' hope scores aren't going up in your classrooms across a school district, you gotta change what you're doing. And sure enough, if you can increase hope and sustain it, changes the world for those kids. Uh, agreed. And I'm through experience. Agreed. And and this is that even without the knowledge uh, that I had before even reading the book. And this is a, this is the last question. It's challenging for many of our leaders who join us to answer, because uh, most of our most of our processes in the leadership circle is gathering leaders around the table, so they're helping one another. This is the one thing that we do that provides them kind of content. So um, if you and I were to pretend we're around a table with leaders, principals on through superintendents, um, educational leaders, regardless of title, um, and, but we're, that table's on an elevator and we're going up five floors, what would you want to leave them with? You only got five floors. What is a piece of advice you want to say, most important, take this home? Hope heals trauma. We know that hope heals trauma from everything we've been doing in all of this work. The real challenge for everybody in any profession is, one, do you know the science of hope? Two, have you tried to apply it in the work that you're doing? And number three, if you've tried to apply it, did you measure it and are you measuring it? So learn it, apply it, test it, measure it, and be willing to change what you're doing in order to increase it. And don't forget, it's not about them. It starts with you. It starts with your level of hope in your own life and transparency about your own struggles, your own difficulties, how we get robbed of hope in our own lives. And if we get robbed, we've got nothing to offer to others. So it starts with me 
and then we can go from there to help others. Casey, I think the the fact, you know, your trajectory from your childhood to your education, to your work as a prosecutor, to, you know, uh, as a politician and so forth, to doing what you do now, it was divine intervention that you met Chan Hellman, wasn't it? I mean, an incredible partnership that really honed the focus of your drive. And I tell educators all the time, what, what they do is very noble work. And let me just say to you, what you're doing is really noble. And um, the what you are describing to us in terms of the books, but also in terms of this conversation is really, really important and valuable. And I, I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I do believe in divine appointments. At the end of my meeting with George Bush, 18 years ago, 19 years ago now, I said, Mr. President, I feel like this is a divine appointment in my life. And George Bush took my hand, pulled me to within 18 inches of his face and said, this is a divine appointment for both of us, Casey, let's go be faithful. And I believe if you start looking at the science of hope, I think it's irrespective of spiritual beliefs, it's a divine appointment for all of us. We just have to be faithful. We just have to study it, we have to figure it out, and then we have to be faithful to actually implement it. And I think it'll transform education. And I think it'll extend the life of every school teacher, every administrator, every leader in the educational space if we actually apply it. Casey, thank you for your time. And uh, this will not be the last time our paths cross. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be with you. You as well. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, um, let's just end with this. It, it does start with you. And uh, the concept of hope is maybe different than, than you think it is. I, I recommend you lean in um, to this concept that there is a science and there is a strategy behind hope. Uh, I appreciate everything that you do to support children, your communities. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.